whether we go through the hustle of our vocation or the emotional weariness of relationships, we often find ourselves regularly depleted of energy. Literally, the way we greet one another has to do with our depletion of energy. How are you? I am tired is our constant rhythmic way of even engaging one another at a very quick, immediate way. We are a weary people, but morally, we are also stretched. When we see the challenges and difficulties in our world, whether we see them through a digital means or we merely see them across the street, we see racism, we see illness, we see manipulation, marginalization, misunderstanding, and abuse. See, if our physical and emotional weariness were not enough morally within our souls, we are stretched as well. It is difficult to be a human being. Separately and collectively, we see each of these aspects ultimately reveal a deeper issue, a sickness, if you will, unto death. The writer and Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, puts it this way, with every increase in degree of consciousness and in proportion to that increase, the intensity of despair increases. The more conscious, the more intense the despair. Or as novelist James Baldwin put it as he was speaking to 200 public school educators in Harlem in 1963, he says this, precisely at the point when you begin to develop a conscience, you must find yourself at war with your society. We are mortal and our world is in derision and therefore the more you pay attention, the more despair, the more difficulty, the more heavy this should weigh on your souls. And so in the middle of that, what I want to say to us, we need comfort. We need comfort in the middle of that. In our search for respite and relief, we have a choice to make. Freedom from the difficulty and suffering or freedom in the difficulty and suffering. It is a modern lie, particularly in Western developed, upwardly mobile cultures to believe we can be free from the suffering. And so the question for us is what does it look like to be free? What does it look like to know peace right in the middle? Because that's the difference. The difference ultimately comes down to those who know peace even in the midst of suffering as opposed to those who don't. Ultimately, though, what we have resorted to, instead of searching and understanding for peace, is we're just happy to be distracted. We're just happy to be distracted. It's too difficult to think through all of the difficulties, tensions, problems, pain, and suffering of the world, and so we just choose distraction. Professor Alan Noble, in his book, Disruptive Witness, explains our distraction and its effect on us this way in his book. The modern person experiences a buffer between themselves and the world out there, including transcendent ideas and truth. The constant distraction of our culture shields us from the kind of deep, honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true. In other words, we create barriers between ourselves and the world, particularly between us and those who are suffering and going through difficulty. Even if that person who is suffering is us. Paradoxically, we can even put a buffer between me, myself, and I, so I don't really have to deal with me. We're distracted. Notice now the tension that you and I face. If we pay attention, we'll drown in despair. But if we remove ourselves from the tension, if we're distracted from it, we live a lie. So we literally face the world in this incredible tension. Do I live in despair or do I live a lie? See, this is where our response comes in. Let's just be comfortable. That's the best we've been able to do. We know despair is around one corner. We know a lie is around another. Let's just pursue comfort. Therefore, we have cultivated an insatiable addiction to comfort, believing we can avoid pain and inconvenience or be distracted by pleasure if we were forced to face challenges in the first place. See, as God has made us, we need to be comforted in such a world to be fully whole. But instead of waiting for God's comfort to come at his time, we have found that the instant gratification of being comfortable is much more pleasing to us. The difference concerns peace. See, peace cannot simply be taken. It must be purchased and given. 
Therefore, when we just want to be comfortable, we crave a life without resistance, without suffering. When we choose peace, we trust God even in the midst of suffering and catastrophe and brokenness. See, seeking comfort from God is about enjoying enjoying his peace, enjoying relationship with him even in the midst of suffering. In fact, when you've got the kind of comfort that comes from God, you pursue those who are in suffering. You will inconvenience yourself. You will willfully choose suffering for the benefit of somebody else. That's, is that like a salt your modern consciousness? You're like, that just feels like the varsity Christians. That feels like the ones that we read about. The, the varsity level Christians, many of them that many of us surmise, are merely those who are living out biblical Christianity. There is nothing spectacular about who they have become in Christ. That is who we all are promised to become in Christ if we would simply surrender to it. Today we'll consider comfort. We'll consider the way in which Paul moved back through the churches through his second and third missionary journey, back through his first missionary journey stops in order to do what? Comfort them, encourage them, love them. He'll go back through Ephesus, Macedonia, to Troas, and then on to Jerusalem. And on this course, he is showing us what biblical comfort really looks like and what the allure of empty comfort does to the soul and ultimately how you and I today can find comfort in Jesus. Look at these words from Acts chapter 20, verse 1 and following. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Purus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Articus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas." where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail to Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, uh, we took him on board and went to Midilin, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Kairos the next day and touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we're coming to you because we need your help. We need comfort. And so I pray for myself. Would you comfort me in this, in this life, in this moment, in this space? And we pray Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray even that you would reveal how we have been complacent. We've been willfully seeking comfort and comfortability for ourselves that we might avoid the sorrows and pains of this world. We thank you that you're a God who doesn't flinch in the face of the things that we cower at. We thank you that you're a God who deals in real space and real time with real power forever the things that befall us. And so give us courage in this. Reveal truth to us. Help us as we build walls of defensiveness that act like what is being said today is for anyone and everyone except us. Would you begin in my heart, God? Break down my walls of self-righteousness 
and ill-conceived righteousness, Father. Would you help me to understand your will and your way? I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray that for my friends and neighbors who may be gathered in this space, perhaps for the very first time under the authority of your word. I pray, Father, that you, the great physician, would work, that you would have your will and your way in this place, and that we'd glorify you, worship you, celebrate you for it. So God, have your way. Do what you do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul is on this third missionary journey. He's revisiting churches, going back through the places that he helped to start. You remember, as we've tracked through Acts, Paul has literally not only been going to cities of planting churches, but he's also been running for his life. So it has not come without hardship. You know, many times we think about our own church planting journey. Started in September, right? We got new signage and these sorts of things. We built a website. Paul literally has no time to do such things because people are trying to kill him. So I'd like to suggest to you, all of that stuff is frills. All of that stuff is completely and utterly secondary and tertiary from the work that God has called us to do. It is a luxury to dabble over font. It is a joy. It's a joy to do it. It's fun. It communicates the beauty of who God is. But what we see here in Paul is doing the hard work of evangelism, the hard work of tilling the soil of a new place that is unrepentant, not following Jesus. He's bringing the truth to them that they might become part of the church. So you can imagine that even though Paul leaves these different cities, difficulty does not. Let me just read a couple of passages for us, kind of summarizing where Paul has been and see if we can't pick up on a theme. Acts 14, 21 through 22 says this, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 15, 36, 41, and 16, 40. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Acts 18, 23. Now we're moving into the third missionary journey. When... He had landed in uh, Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church, and they went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. What's amazing about this, and we can track and see a number of different places where this happens, Paul goes back. His first missionary journey starts these churches, runs for his life. He goes back to these places. I won't go back where somebody says something that seems mean, let alone where they're trying to kill me. Paul is going back through all of those places to encourage the Christians, because though he left, difficulty didn't. He goes back there to encourage them, and how does he do that? They just hang out. They just hang out. He just goes there, and, and Luke, the writer of Acts, says, and they stayed a couple of days. What do we think they did? They probably ate food, they hung out, they sat by a fire, and chatted. My little productive soul is like, that just does not seem helpful. That doesn't seem fruitful at all. Like, what did they accomplish? Like, what did they do? It seems like what Luke is recording and what Paul understood is that there's a kind of encouragement of just being. Just being there. Just being present. Yes, he writes letters. Yes, he sends those letters to instruct the hearts and the minds of the church. He also just shows up, has a drink, has a meal, and is with them. Catches up. Why? Because they're friends. Can you imagine that? That you actually are at church with your friends? And I'm not talking about the two or three people you're cool with, but that we all are friends. That there's not these little factions and groups within the group. We're a family. See, Paul gets this, and so he goes back and sees his family members. He draws near to them. And so what Paul begins to deliver and what he shows us is not a freedom from the suffering, but a freedom right in the middle of it, a peace, a hope, a comfort right in the middle of it, and therefore he is present with them. Therefore, seeing this habit of what we'll simply call gospel-level encouragement, we shouldn't be surprised to read what happens in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Let's read it again. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. <clears throat> when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was 
about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Let's remember, Paul in chapter 19 has just been in Ephesus. The Ephesians, who did not like Paul's message, all gathered together and began a riot, chanting for multiple hours at a time, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Our God is great, don't bring that Jesus into this house. Right? It's this sort of retort. And they begin to plan not only violence against his compatriots, but they're looking for Paul in order not only to imprison him, but likely to take him out. And so Paul flees for his life. But before he leaves, before he leaves Ephesus, he gets the disciples together. And did you notice what it says that he does? He encourages them. He encourages them. And so he does this in Ephesus. And then he goes to Macedonia by verse 2. And what does he do there in Macedonia? He encourages them. Whereas the encouragement in Ephesus is much more general, the encouragement in Macedonia, that word for much, is actually many words. This gives me great hope, right? The way in which he delivers encouragement is through words. He communicates through many words the truth of who God is. Because you remember, as we've learned previously, true encouragement, true joy, true comfort to someone is not telling them who they are, but telling them who they are in Christ. Not telling them who they are in and of themselves, but reminding them of who God is no matter the circumstance. That's real encouragement. So Paul encourages these people, and it seems like now Paul encourages everyone, anywhere, all the time. This is just what he's doing. He's working back through these churches, encouraging everyone. And the word that Luke uses for encouragement is deeply helpful for us in the original language to understand what's going on. In verse 1 and verse 2, as well as the passages from Acts 14, 15, and 18 that we read about, this word comfort or encouragement is the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo has a wealth of meaning. Depending on context, it could mean a couple of things. To call to, as in to holiness, to call to holiness. Or it could, it could mean to exhort, to speak truth. Or it could mean to comfort, to bring reassurance or consolation. And this last meaning, to comfort, has this great literal weight to it about being close and drawing near. In other words, it bears a quality of coming alongside, of keeping close to someone or something. In other words, to parakaleo, you have to draw near. To parakaleo, you have to be close. To speak truth or to call to holiness or to encourage, you have to be close No wonder Paul didn't just send letters, but he literally physically went to them because he was incarnating this idea of parakaleo. He was drawing close. To be sure, a text message is nice. To be sure, a phone call gets it a little bit better. To be sure, FaceTime is really lovely. But let's be real. There's nothing like being in someone's presence. Psychologist Shannon Alder puts it this way as she writes, one of the most important things you can do on this earth is to let people know they are not alone. And your physical presence does that. There truly is something about drawing close which breeds relationship, encouragement, and hope. Can you imagine if Paul preached a gospel that almost cost him his life and the whole church and they just never heard from him again? How discouraging that would be. So Paul travels through these various towns and encourages the church until he gets to Troas. Look at verse 4. Sopater the Berean, the son of uh, Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Articus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy uh, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophius, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we set sail for Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. It's important to see and keep in mind that Paul is never doing this isolation project. It's never solo. He is constantly in the company of men and women. We've read much about Priscilla and Aquila, and now we're introduced to a number of different people who are these local ministers of the gospel, these local specific people who know the culture, know the people, their friends and family live in these cities, and they're beginning to engage and be used by God to make much of Jesus. Now, we've read a lot about Timothy. We've looked at him in particular, especially the letters that have been written by Paul to him, instructing him about what it means to be an elder of the local church. But Tychicus is also 
later noted in a couple of places for you. Do you know what? You guessed it. Gospel encouragement. This dude is amazing. Ephesians 6, 21 and 22 says this. Tychicus, Paul writes, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That he may, that word in Ephesians 6, parakaleo, encourage your hearts. Encouragement is contagious. It's part of discipleship. It's part of growing up in Jesus. To be comforted is part of what it means to be a part of the Christian family. We encourage one another. Tychicus continues on in Colossians chapter 4, verse 8. This is what Paul continues to write about him. Tychicus will tell you, All about my activities. He is my beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is like Paul's heat seeking missile of encouragement. He like just sends him out. If there's a church that needs encouragement, he's like, send Tychicus in. That dude will encourage their hearts. Oh, that God would say that about us. That others would say that about us. If somebody is low on the, in the middle of despair, frustration, and pain, I know exactly who to send to them. Oh, that we'd be like Tychicus. Somebody who is trusted to go to a place, to go to a people, and bring encouragement. All this to say about gospel comfort, gospel encouragement that Paul and his team are bringing to the church, the exact nature of that encouragement is quite vague until we get to Troas in verse 7. So let's look at it together. On the first day of the week when, they, when we were rather gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, or where we were gathered, and a young man, verse 9, named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Okay, so this is quite a story. Paul, as he has done throughout his third missionary journey, enters into a home, simply shares a meal with them, is with them, and likely many people are to hear about this, and and not since Acts 2.42 do we hear that there is this breaking of bread taking place, that this begins to sort of be the, the composition of their gathering, this togetherness there, and he begins to speak and communicate the gospel. But none of that is what draws our attention, right? You're like, that's all well and good. Let's talk about the dude who just fell out of a window listening to someone preach and died, right? Well, I feel compelled to defend Paul at this point. Let's call it a kind of uh, preaching fraternity that I want to make sure to do him justice. Because you might be tempted to say, ah, see, Jason, this is why you must keep the sermon short. See, our attention span is feeble. You preach too long. We will die. So don't do that. (laughs) I'd like to suggest to you, and I would, I would beg the Lord to make clear, um, that there's something else going on here. It's not the length of the sermon. I think it's the posture of the listener. You're welcome. Notice the posture of Eutychus. First of all, Luke makes sure to say there were a lot of lamps in the room. Isn't that detail amazing? In other words, there was this sort of ambient light a little bit that perhaps many of us like to study in or read in, but it's not really good if you're sleepy and a preacher is going on until midnight, right? So the mood is even set. There's something even about the context about that room creating the perfect environment for droopy eyes to give in to sleep. And this young man with that challenging environment late into the night sits In a window, no doubt he is reclining, leaning against the windowsill, leaning against the side. In this posture, he is set up for failure, set up for sleep, set up for subsequent disaster. Eutychus was settling, might I suggest to you, for a physical comfort while Paul was preaching of an eternal comfort that he could have. I don't mean to overstate this. I don't mean to make too much of this moment, but surely this was a freak accident. But Eutychus took every step to fail. Eutychus took every step to fail. He was overtaken by a physical exhaustion and weariness, and yet the lighting in the room, the place he was seating, how he was seating, allowing his eyes 
to go. Everything was making sure that his physical comfort came first. All the while, Paul was speaking of a kind of holistic rest that he could have in Jesus. And Eutychus, really what he does is point back to us, takes immediate comfort over lasting comfort, albeit unintentionally, I hear you, but when do we intentionally take the lesser thing? When do we intentionally take the thing that we know is detrimental for us? To better and I think rightly understand the comfort that Paul is speaking about, we've got to look to God because it's not Paul himself who invents this idea of comfort. It comes from the very character of God. All virtue we are to aspire to comes first, foremost, and forever from God himself. The comfort Paul brings is not one he created, but one he received. After all, Paul is not speaking an encouraging word based on his own merit or the merit of his ministry, but on the merit of Jesus. Perhaps the clearest treatment of Paul's message of comfort, of parakaleo, of encouragement, is found in his writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians verse 1, 3-7. through 7. Hear this, the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, Paul writes. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. In this short passage, no less than 10 times does Paul employ the word parakaleo. No less than 10. In just a handful of of verses. And what he's helping us to see above anything else is the character of God. First, God is the God of all comfort. He is the source of our genuine gladness and peace. God's comfort is extended to us in suffering. Did you pick up on that theme in Corinthians? While under pressure in this life, we can enjoy the pleasures of the age to come. God's comfort comes through suffering Though we may not see it happen, by his spirit, he begins to produce things in us by his grace that otherwise would not bear in our lives. God's comfort comes through his people and their stories. Did you notice this reciprocal and familial relationship that Paul is speaking of? If we have been afflicted, it is for your comfort. And I want to comfort you the way I have received comfort. Your comfort is never meant for you. Your biblical comfort is never meant for you. It's meant that you might be an encouragement and a comfort to somebody else, that you might parakaleo as God in Christ is parakaleo in your life. God's comfort is more enduring than our suffering. Sorrow is bound up in this world. That means no matter what, divine comfort will outlast earthly trouble. God's comfort is not merely a bulwark for the early church. It's been his character from the start. God's people, Israel, were encouraged in a number of different ways. In fact, two particular metaphors speak to us about the comfort of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 11 speak to the first. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. How does this take place? Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God's comfort comes to his people like a shepherd. Shepherd brings comfort to his flock, embracing them, carrying them through danger and with love, self-sacrifice to flourishing pastures where they'll find life. Isaiah later uses another picture in chapter 66 of encouragement and care. He says it this way in verses 13 and 14. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. 
God brings comfort to his family like a mother brings comfort to her children, speaking to their hearts, nourishing their bodies, yet still giving authority and direction in their life. If we pay attention, we'll drown in despair. If we just remain distracted, we'll live a lie. It's hard to be a human being. We need comfort. And God is the one who can supply all that we need. God's comfort points to right living in the midst of such troubling world. So my brothers and sisters, you ought to run to him like a sheep runs back to her shepherd. You should run to him and curl up with him as if your mother to give you all that you need. See, in despair, God will show us his power and love. In a lie, God will show us his truth and grace. No matter the reason why you need comfort, the God of the Bible can supply all that you need. And his presence, his relationship, it is in close proximity with us that he gives us this saving balm of healing, of forgiveness, of comfort. Singing of God, singing specifically of Jesus as a healing and comforting balm. American slaves held fast to a hope in the middle of unspeakable suffering and despair. Taking from Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22, they spoke of this enduring comfort in a popular spiritual. It says this, There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus. And he said he died for all. Don't ever feel discouraged, for Jesus is your friend. And if you lack for knowledge, he'll not refuse to lend. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. This is the truth of who our God is. And so the question for us to wrestle with, is if that's our God of comfort, if he is bending over heaven, ready, willing, desiring to give us peace in the middle of our problems and pain, to give us genuine and lasting comfort, why do we reject him? Why do we not come to him for comfort? See, regretfully, we do not draw near to the shepherd, nor do we curl up in the arms of God our shepherdly Savior, our motherly Lord. We do not wait to be comforted by God. Instead, we just want to be comfortable. We curl up on windowsills and go to sleep, giving in to whatever physical discomfort we have at the time, and we wake up in death. The Scriptures speak to our longing and temptation using this wonderful, really unearthing phrase, empty comfort. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2 says this, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Notice this. There are not some who need to go to God as a shepherd because they are weak and lesser than others. Faith in Jesus is not a crutch for lesser souls, but ultimately we find comfort in him no matter what our affliction is. And notice when we wander away from the shepherd, it's not because we don't have problems. It actually gives us more affliction and pain. So where are you wandering? As God drew near to Adam in the garden, where are you? Where are you wandering? What false dreams are you dreaming what empty comforts are you choosing? See, Job knew the smell of empty comfort. His friends, in fact, his wife even just said, curse God and die, because that would be more comfortable. Job wisely responds to this in Job 21, 34. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Job knows what Zechariah is talking about. Any comfort, any consolation that sidesteps suffering and merely seeks comfort is empty because it hasn't dealt with the issues that brought you pain in the first place. It hasn't dealt with the problems of our soul, of our heart, our brokenness, the brokenness of this world. Being comfortable is about being distracted from real problems of this life. And true despair 
settles in in our hearts all the while. Empty comfort is cheap, feels good in a moment, is gone very quickly. Empty comfort is superficial and never gets rooted in because it never roots anything out. We are merely distracted. Empty comfort is instant, yet regressive. It gives you pleasure quickly, but it always takes more than it gives. Empty comfort leads to destruction. I promise you, my sister, my brother, empty comfort will kill you. I don't want to do this, but the Lord told me to. I've personally been embracing my own season of empty comfort. Many of you know I lost my sister-in-law back in November. It was immensely and is immensely sorrowful. To be sure, the heaviest sorrow is not having Becky anymore. She was 36 years old. She was leading in her field of bringing redemption and legislation to the disenfranchised, those without families, completely rewriting the script of what it means to adopt children in the United States internationally. Grief comes like waves. You know, this is what I've been learning in my season of grief. You deal with one wave only to get ready for the next. You never put grief away. This recurring unwelcome grief has shown me, though, my weakness, my desire to simply be comfortable and embrace what is easy and avoid pain instead of seeking true comfort, which comes through the pain. See, what this looks like is too often I see my wife when we're sitting finally on the couch. Kids are finally in bed. We've got four kids. Your prayers are always welcome. And I can tell, I just see the glint in her eye that there is sorrow. And in that moment, I have a decision to make. Do I ask her why she's sad or do I say, what do you want to watch on Netflix? I've confessed to her, and here I am before you too often. I have said, what do you want to watch on Netflix? Because I know if I ask her, are you sad? That will be inconvenient. I will cry. I won't go to bed on time, and it will be massively uncomfortable. I'll have to go through another wave. See, even when Laura begins to share a little bit of her sorrow and grief with me in a moment, a strong temptation wells up in me. Don't ask any follow-up questions. Just let her get this out. Give her a hug and kiss. See, I don't want to peel back the layers of grief because every layer makes me weaker because I don't know what to do with that. It exposes, it's uncomfortable. In other words, I don't trust that real comfort will come through suffering. I just want to avoid suffering entirely and feel comfortable. Now, some of you might just in your hearts be going, Pastor, calm down. Death is hard. It's all good. You're grieving. Don't be too hard on yourself. I think that's a comfortable way to encourage me. Please don't. Because this is sin. It's sinful because it overlooks my wife's need. It fails to die for her as Jesus instructed me to do that I promised and covenanted before him and our family and friends to do. It's sinful because it lacks trust in the God of all comfort. It's sinful because it's an idolatry of self-comfort that I am unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of my bride. I'm making comfort ultimate. I've confessed to Laura. I've shared this in part with my group. I've received help from our counselor, and yet I'm still in the middle of this. So let me tell you that the application for this of me is not So now, like I've learned to do better, literally this week, this is what I'm in the middle of. And the Lord's like, why don't you preach on Acts 20 and learn on this a little bit, Jason? How about you? Because I need this encouragement. I need to be reminded that the Lord is gracious and kind and is a very present help in time of trouble. When I am willing to walk through pain and suffering, he meets me there and brings me peace and genuine comfort. Where are you? Where are you settling for empty comfort? Let me list a few just to get your mind going. To be sure, the way that I've faced grief, unwilling to peel back the layers of my weakness, but in a more perhaps practical and clear-headed way, sex before marriage is an empty comfort. It's choosing your physical pleasure as opposed to the covenant that God has made for you that we don't want to wait and we don't have to. Sex even in marriage can be an empty comfort if you trust it to create and stabilize intimacy and control. Misusing alcohol and substances, going to them when you're sorrowful or when you believe you're a champion at work and giving excuses and justification, that is an empty comfort that will not last. 
recreation, giving precedent to doing anything and everything out of the city whenever you want to, however you want, whenever you want. That is an empty comfort that will be gone as soon as you get back in city limits. Denying racial disparity and inequalities and injustices is a real thing. That's an empty comfort because it's really hard to admit that maybe I still have racism in my heart I don't want to face. Not just out there, but even in our church. Think about the people that you roll with. It's easy to roll with birds of a feather, but that's not the church. It may be uncomfortable to engage across racial, ethnic, and cultural lines. Welcome to the church. We do uncomfortable things 24-7. It's who we are. None of these will comfort you in your affliction. No empty comfort ever delivers what you desire. It may in short may for a moment, may feel nice in the immediate. See, one of the lies that religion tells us about sin is that sin always hurts, always harms, and never is nice. No, sometimes it's really fun. Sometimes it's a joy. It feels like a joy. It feels like happiness. It feels like pleasure, but it will always take more from you than it gives. That train is never late. And when we do not deal with our affliction, our pains, our sufferings, our weakness shortcomings lead to our demise. That's what's illustrated in Acts chapter 20. Choosing sleep over sanctification leads to death. It's a principle the writer and weakly quoted by every pastor in America, Chronicles of Narnia writer, C.S. Lewis, writes this in Mere Christianity. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with and in the end, despair. Therefore, we must look directly at truth if we desire to have everlasting comfort. Now, a passage fueled by religion, founded on religion, would end with Eutychus dying and something like the principle um, would be stay awake at church or you'll die, right? That, that was how we can apply it and just say see you next week. Um, don't seek earthly comfort or it will kill you, right? If, if we're preaching religion, the message is over, right? But thanks be to God, this passage isn't over, this message isn't over because the gospel is not done with your sin. Look at verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over over him and taking him in his arms, oh, this is so beautiful, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they looked, the youth, they took rather the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They were not a little what? Somebody tell me. Comforted. They were not a little what, church? Comforted. What's that word in the original language? Parakaleo. Somebody say parakaleo. Parakaleo. It's a dead language. It may not be the way you pronounce it, but that's what we'll say. The theme is clear. This notice that this encouragement took place by Paul literally incarnating the word that Luke used about the story. He drew near because Paul saw life where everyone else only saw death. Paul saw life where everyone else only saw death, and therefore he begins to live in the wake. Think Isaiah 40, like a shepherd. Isaiah 66, like a mother, picks him up, draws near to him by the power of God, therefore. Paul brings a dead man back to life. God brings ultimate comfort through resurrection. This is our great comfort. Resurrection is our ultimate comfort. Why? Because resurrection is our hope. Not to avoid pain, problems, confusion, tension, and derision, but what? Overcoming them in Christ. To see in suffering, in pain, in death, the defeated Satan, the resurrected Lord, and ultimately what N.T. Wright puts this way, is he announces the truth of the resurrection in Surprised by Hope, his great book that I commend to you. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant and the point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding, is that death has been defeated. Resurrection is not the redescription of death. It is the overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. 
True comfort is not avoiding evil. It's knowing that in Christ, evil has already been defeated. That suffering will one day be no more. That out of love and no doubt encouragement, Paul is present in someone's home, speaks truth in someone's home, preaches to them even to midnight church, and he preaches long into the night, culminating to this resurrection moment. I want to tell you this. Few people from that night are going to remember what time it was. They're going to remember someone died and got brought back to life. This is not the first whiff of resurrection in Acts or in the Bible. 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zaphath's son. 2 Kings 4, the Shunammite woman's son. 2 Kings 13, man out of Elisha's grave. Luke 7, widow of Nahan's son. Luke 8, Jairus' daughter. Matthew 27, saints in Jerusalem. 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are dead in Christ. See, resurrection is not a backup plan or wishful thinking. Resurrection has always been God's plan to defeat the sorrow, sin, brokenness, and death of this world. Therefore, every resurrection that took place before Jesus was meant to prepare us for his. Every resurrection after Jesus solidifies and proves that his was legit. Resurrection. It's not a backup plan or wishful thinking. Resurrection is our reality. Therefore, in suffering, we look to Christ. In the midst of lies, the resurrected Lord speaks truth. As we are bleeding with the wounds of this world, the the resurrected Lord heals us with this great balm of our, our affliction. When threatened by our enemies, the resurrected Lord, we see our glorious victory in him. And as the Heidelberg Confession, this wonderful document, asks a question and gives an answer. What comfort does the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, raised by the power of Christ, shall again be united with my soul and made like the glorious body of Christ. Jesus is our ultimate resurrection comfort. You see, Jesus could have chosen to be comfortable. I'd like to suggest to you that where he was was immensely comfortable, in the very presence and glory of his heavenly Father, enjoying eternal union with God the Father, himself the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No suffering, no pain, no problems, only glory and joy, unspeakable. He could have chosen to remain in comfort In doing so, he would have avoided avoided the incarnation. He would have avoided the cross. He would have sidestepped the crucifixion, but he didn't. Jesus Christ did not choose to be comfortable. He chose to be discomforted for our eternal comfort. He chose to be our comfort in time of need. Therefore, he not only took on flesh, but he died in our place for our sins. He drew near. He came close. His utter discomfort is our transformative pericaleo. He came alongside for our good. Now nearly 70 years old, Johnny Erickson Tata has been a quadriplegic since she was a teenager. She misjudged the shallowness of the Chesapeake Bay and dove in headfirst when she was just a young girl. Decades later, she is not only a quadriplegic, but is battling depression, the unique challenges of life in a wheelchair, She's now, though, become the author of 40 different books, an advocate for the disabled, and an ambassador for the gospel. Here's what she writes about the comfort she has found in Christ. And can I suggest to you, she has some of the most street cred on this topic than anyone we will ever find. This is what she says. You don't have to be alone in your hurt. Comfort is yours. Joy is an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort so you might have it. He postponed joy so you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so you would never have to be alone in your hurt and sorrow. Johnny's eyes are wide open to the plan of this world. She found a lasting hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our narrative shifts back to the travel details, or so it would seem. Look at verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, he took him aboard. And we went to Mytilene, verse 15, and sailing from there, 
we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, uh, we went to uh, Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul is hustling to Jerusalem now. He wants to get there before Pentecost. If you recall, Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down, filling the people of God. Here's where we see the birth of the church and the filling of God's Spirit in his people. No doubt, though, this is the part of the world then, Jerusalem, where they would be celebrating the most, but also where persecution would be the severest. Paul wants to run there. In that tension of sorrow and celebration, which I'd like to suggest to you, Christians are always sorrowful and always celebrating because our eyes are always wide open to what is going on in this world. In the midst of that sorrow and celebration, Paul is eager to get to the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's encouragement. Encouragement is drawing near to our brothers and sisters in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of tension, bringing grace and truth. Because that's what Christ has done for us. This is our story. What else do we do but draw near? When we have been eternally encouraged in Christ, we ought to become gospel encouragers. This doesn't mean that we become crazy optimists, ignoring problems and just quoting verses to people without actually touching their hearts. It means that we're honest about the pain and we take ownership of the brokenness. We lean into the tension and we speak life. We speak gospel. We speak Jesus. We draw near. We speak truth and we point to Christ because it's hard to be a human being. So thanks be to God, Jesus became human being that we might know comfort in the midst of the difficulty. Who do you need to draw near to? What truth do you need to share? With whom do you need to share a meal? Who do you just need to be with? How do you need to pay better attention to the issues, discomforts, and pains of our world? How do you need to confess your addiction to comfort? What empty comfort are you trusting in? And all of those things receive lasting comfort. Be comforted in Christ as God in Christ has comforted us through the resurrection of Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we certainly ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. We so easily choose empty comfort here one minute and gone the next, but man, it sure feels good immediately. And so we ask, Father, would you set our eyes on a better vision, a better purpose, a better joy than what comes immediately and instantly, but what lasts? And I pray, would you encourage, Father, by your Spirit, Would you encourage us as a people to see each other in our times of need, that we might draw near, not just as Paul did, but as Jesus has. Whether it's difficulty paying bills, whether it's cultural tensions in our neighborhood of feeling isolated in a particular problem or pain, whether it's feeling overlooked, marginalized, forgotten. Father, Help us in the ways that we even just choose comfort every single day, any way to avoid difficulty and pain. Help us, Father, to know what it is, instead of choosing our comfort, to follow your grace, to follow your gospel, to follow the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, that we might know an eternal comfort in him. We love you. We thank you. We ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.